0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Built On Purpose Podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. My name is Brian Moore, co-founder and managing partner of Scouts, and today I'm interviewing Tucker Max. It's hard to say what Tucker is. In fact, Tucker would be the first to say he doesn't want to label himself. That is one of the topics of conversation we get into. But just to give you a little bit about him, this is a guy that has written four books and three of them have gone on to become New York Times bestsellers. He's produced a movie, he has started five companies. He's done a lot in a really, really short period of time. The other thing that he's done that I find fascinating is essentially evolved who he is as a human being. He wrote a blog series, and I think it's going to be ongoing, uh, that essentially talks about how he went from, these are his words, not mine, from an asshole to the CEO, and now how he has fired himself as the CEO. We cover so many interesting topics in this conversation, from meditation to Buddhism, to divorcing your ego from your business dealings, to what it's like to start all these businesses, hiring people, firing people it's just fascinating. Books he recommends. I could go on and on and on. Uh, For those of you that know who he is and have read any of his books or know anything about him, I can assure you this is one of those episodes that is just absolutely engaging from start to finish. So I'm going to stop right there and let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, Tucker Max. Ladies and gentlemen, joining me today is the one and only Tucker Max. Tucker, how are you, my friend? Excellent, man. Very good. Glad to be here. Yeah, really excited to have you. You know, And I have to admit right out of the gate that, uh, I don't know, it was three or four weeks ago when you had accepted uh, our invitation to, to join us on the show, uh, that the My office was just buzzing like, oh, my God, we're going to have Tucker Max on the show. And I'm probably one of like, I don't know, four or five people west of the Mississippi uh, who really didn't have a good handle on who you were. And so I'm embarrassed to say and I've been doing a ton of research and I can clearly see why everybody was making fun of me uh, for not having a good grasp of who you are and what you've accomplished up to this point in your life. And I got to say that as I was doing my research, what I found about you sort of led me in this direction that there's kind of two Tucker Maxes. There's a, a younger version of Tucker Max, and there's the today version and, the, and the, the evolving version of Tucker Max. And so that said, I want to start with uh, likely a, a relatively straightforward, but perhaps a bit of a deep question. Who is Tucker Max? <laughs> You know, I get that question a lot, and
1: um, I'm not really sure how to answer it. It's funny. um, A lot of people give me credit for being good at personal branding, and I actually feel like I'm pretty bad at personal branding because I get asked that question. If you get asked that question, it means you are so many things. People have a hard time nailing you down to one. Right, which sure. in the lessons, you know, the general lesson of personal branding is your brand should be immediately identifiable and memorable and uh, and sort of, um, a relate, uh, you know, transmittable, like anyone should be able to talk about it. And that's kind of the weird thing with me is that I do so many things and I've done so many things that it's hard to get a handle, right? Like if you read my early stuff, you're like, oh, he's just, you know, a drunken douchey flat, frat boy. Uh, and then you like read other stuff and you're like, hold on a minute. That's not who he is at all. Uh, or at least that's not all who he is, you know? So, and then, you know, now I've got a family, a wife, a kid, a uh, company. It's like, um, man, I, the way I think of it is uh, I don't, this is going to sound stupidly cliche, but I, I I mean it. I, I don't ever try and limit myself to I'm X or I'm Y. What I really try and do to an identity, essentially to a specific identity, because as soon as you say I'm X, you know I'm a writer, I'm a, an athlete, right? Well, then you've automatically limited who you are and what you can become, and you've started putting, um, you've started putting frameworks on how you see yourself, and that's always gonna lead you in a bad direction. I'll, I'll give you a, a great example. Um, I. Okay, so I always, you know, I never thought of myself as a writer. And the way I got started writing was essentially writing emails to my friends. And because I I never identified as a writer, then I never thought I needed to learn what the rules of writing are and follow the rules of writing. All I cared about was writing funny emails that made my friends laugh. And it turns out because I didn't follow any of the rules of writing, because I never even bothered to learn them, I ended up inadvertently inventing a new genre of literature uh, called fratire uh, and then uh, selling books, you know, three million copies of books and inspiring an entire new generation of writers because I I never attached an identity to myself. I just worried about doing things that other people enjoy. Does that make sense?
0: That makes a ton of sense. You know, what comes up for me uh, to this point is that this this notion of maybe you've done a really lousy job at personal branding because you get the question of, well, who is Tucker Max fairly often, maybe maybe a different spin, or at least as I'm interpreting the research I've done and hearing you say that you is you've, you've really lived your life in a way that is out in the open. Um, most of us, I'll just focus on me. I, I don't have the stones to show the world and tell the world everything about my life and what's gone, what's happened to me up to this point. I tell a few close friends, maybe some family, but you've been, I'll call it courageous as hell to just put your life out there. And perhaps that could be why this branding question comes up and, uh, uh, people are witnessing your evolution out in the open and you're living a pretty transparent life.
1: Yeah. You know uh, what's funny about that is, is um, I feel like I haven't put much at all out there. I could, that what's crazy is if you read all my books and I definitely wrote about things, look, I, one of the reasons I got famous and my book sold is because I talked about the things that everyone did that no one talked about. Sure. Right? Sure. So like, you know, like, hooking, all the dirty details of drinking, hooking up, uh, you know, just the party culture of your 20s, I just wrote it all down. And I wrote it down in a very honest, authentic, and funny way. And it resonated with a lot of people. But um, if you actually read those books, you don't actually know anything about me at the end of it. You know stories, and you know how I feel about certain things. But the books are not about me as a person. They're about a set of experiences, right? And and then the same thing, like you can read a lot of the stuff I write about my company and how I fired myself as CEO, all these sorts of things. And and they're very, uh, they're very vulnerable and they're very raw and authentic and honest. That's all true. But how much still at the end of it, how much do you actually know about me as a person, right? I, I think because the way I approach writing is um, I'm honest and I'm authentic and I'm vulnerable uh, and I'm raw, which is really crucial to connect with people. But I don't make it about me. I make it about what I'm feeling. And the reason it resonates with people is because I'm helping them understand what they're feeling and seeing in their own life. But I'm not making it about me. That's the thing everyone gets wrong about my writing. I can't tell you how many people have tried to imitate me. And be like, oh, Tucker Max wrote a story about throwing up on himself and getting drunk and falling down. I'm going to do the same thing. And their story is just so deeply narcissistic and it's just me 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 me, the whole time and no one cares you know no one cares about their story it doesn't resonate they don't want to read because they're not making it about uh they're not all writing ultimately is about entertaining the reader right or giving value to the reader or informing or whatever just like all selling all products all companies everything is about the transaction of value And so that's that's why people it feels like, you know, a lot about me, but you actually don't just from my writing. I mean,
0: you know. Yeah, absolutely. And so using that as a segue and all of the books, uh, which I believe three of the four you've written, have gone on to become New York Times bestsellers. You've produced a movie. You've started multiple companies. You've done a lot in a relatively short period of time. And you mentioned the uh, firing yourself as CEO. So there's this really for those of uh, our audience that that doesn't know, there's this great I'll call it a blog series that's on your website, and you share some really deep personal failures and learnings from along your journey, and it paints I think a very different picture of of who you really are than perhaps in the point you're making of what your books. Uh, lead people to interpret about who you are. And one of the topics that I want to chat about is Buddhism. And one of the key insights of Buddhism, and you share this in one of your articles or one of your blog posts, that all of human suffering, all the suffering of humanity is caused by an attachment to an identity or to a particular result. I'm curious how you've been able to divorce your identity and your ego I and mean, we all have it, right? we all have an identity, we all have an ego, right from the business results or the goals that you 've been driving towards what's that journey <laughs> for you been like Dude,
1: that's, it's been so hard that's <laughs> like you you nailed it, man. you nailed the crucial thing about me and the struggle and my journey and and really at the end of the day, I think almost all people's journeys totally uh, it, it, at its core is about this is how do you separate um how do you how do you separate the self from the actions and the relationships and whatever and uh dude so much therapy so much introspection so much meditation so much work man it's like it's so hard because everything about it feels like everything about culture and about our brain um pushes us to uh to to create these identities for ourselves right like i'm a writer So then as soon as you're a writer, you think, oh, I have to have a certain kind of desk. I have to write a certain way. I have to impress a certain type of person. I'm not allowed to say other things, right? But the reason I became a famous uh, writer is because I didn't actually attach that identity, so I was free to be anything, right? And so the same thing happened to me in entrepreneurship. I, 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 I stumbled onto an amazing idea for a company. And I think I've got to be a startup entrepreneur. And this time, I wasn't quite as smart, as I, or I, lucky, actually, as I was with a writer, because it was basically luck. And, and, and I, I, I still, had, oh, you know, I've got to be the CEO. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And, uh, and eventually, I was. it was a great idea. The company started doing great. And we did, like, $2 million in our first year. And it was like, uh, this is amazing. But then uh, the, the job outgrew me. You know and and so i had a choice to make i, I either had to go out and fi- i had to admit to myself that i i was not the right person i did not have the skill set to be the ceo of this company and, and to scale it up and then i had to go find that person which takes a lot of humility if your identity is i'm going to be an entrepreneur and a startup ceo That takes a ton of humility, right? And so that that was a problem with me is I had to kind of connect that. But as soon as I realized, look, why do I have to be the CEO? Why can't I just be part of this team? Why can't I just help this, uh, this, this idea grow and this company grow and help us bring value to the world? And I'll do the things that I'm the best at, which don't include being a CEO. As soon as I realized that, then it was really easy for me to detach my identity from a title and then kind of move on and, and find that person. Right? You know, Does that make sense? That makes sense. Hey, I can boil it down to if you if you make it about you, you're gonna make decisions that don't benefit the group or your goals. If you make it about the group and your goals, you're gonna make uh decisions
0: that benefit them, and then by extension, you. So you know? th- yeah, what I'm hearing is 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 this process of seeing the businesses, the ideas, the, the things you're involved in as, as things you're doing, not necessarily as who you are. Yes. That, perfectly. That's exactly it. Like, because like,
1: he, here's why this is so important. Take failure. For example, everyone wants it now is all hot on, Oh, you got to fail a bunch, right? That's fucking stupid. Failure is not the goal. The reason they talk about it is because they see a bunch of people who've succeeded and they failed a bunch on the way, right? right. And the reason a lot of people – and that's great. It's true. The, the path to success is always littered with false starts, right? And so uh, uh, feeling free to do false starts means that you can almost in, in, invariably find the, the right path. But the reason failure screws with people is because they think, if I fail, then I am a failure. Right, because they attach their identity to the action. I am what I do, as opposed to saying, okay, I am a person and I'm trying something. And if that something works, that's great. And if that something doesn't work, that sucks, but no big deal, because it's not me. I'm a person, right? That's what, That's actually why I, did, I, I was able to do all this cool stuff as a writer, is because writer wasn't my identity. Right? So I experimented, I did different things, and, and most of them didn't work for a long time or were weird or, were, or people criticized, but I didn't care. They were criticizing me as a writer, but I never – that's not my identity. I didn't identify as a writer, so it was super easy for me to, to just keep experimenting and find the right path. You nailed it. You're exactly right.
0: You know, you mentioned uh, the, the therapy and meditation, and I want to talk about meditation just for a minute, um, maybe at a high level. How long have you been doing it and and how would you describe what meditation has done for you? So
1: I um, about five and a half years ago, I started psychoanalysis, uh, which is it's just a a form of talk therapy. Um, uh, I spent four years in psychoanalysis going forward and I went pretty much four times a week the whole time. Uh, and then, uh, and psychoanalysis almost invariably has a beginning and an end. It's not like one of these things you just do forever. And so, uh, when I was done with it, but I, I'm listen, I'm, I'm not the, I'm not enlightened enough to be able to be like, oh, four years and I'm done. Like I, I have a lot more work to do with myself. It's just psychoanalysis kind of ran its course. And so, um, I picked up meditation about three years into psychoanalysis. And that's actually why I was able, most psychoanalysis take maybe five to eight years. I was able to accelerate it because meditation basically isn't trying to accomplish the same goal that psychoanalysis does, they just use directly opposite things. They're trying to connect the conscious to the unconscious, trying to bring up uh, and surface sort of the unspoken, right? And, and, and psychoanalysis does it through, through talk therapy, Buddhism through sitting quietly with yourself, focusing on your breath, and then recognizing and accepting and having no judgment of the thoughts that that invariably come up that boil up out of the unconscious right and so uh i was able to really kind of accelerate psychoanalysis now i meditate uh and then i try to meditate once a day i probably meditate four to five times a week consistently and then i try to do it 20 minutes a day because of you know the buddhist saying you should meditate 20 minutes a day and if you don't have enough time to meditate 20 minutes, you should meditate an hour. So I'm like, <laughs> I can do 20 minutes, and that's it. that's it. Um, and, and so uh, that's really helped. It re- I can tell, like if I go a week without meditating, which happens sometimes, I can tell, my wife can tell actually, she's like, you haven't been meditating, have you? Uh, because it, it's almost like, you can almost think of it as like clearing the baggage and the 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 sort of toxicities out of your system like if you don't sleep for a long time sure your brain gets full of of um, it doesn't clear all the 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 junk same thing with meditation for me like it's got a, it's a way to give my unconscious a voice and to to really un, to connect with what I'm feeling and understand it it doesn't go away and you don't control it you just under you see it and you recognize it and you get at least an acceptance of it even if you don't fully understand it. And that, um, that's really, really helped me um, kind of uh, calm down and center. Like, that's the only reason I was able to step down as CEO of my company is because I've done all this work. Because I realized I was making it about me instead of making it. I, I, my identity was CEO, and I needed to succeed as a CEO so, because that's a high-status uh, you know, thing, and I needed that. And then once I realized I was doing that, I was like, oh, man.
0: Like, I don't need this. This is I I need to step aside. You know, was it difficult for you to not beat the crap out of yourself in in this realization, you know, coming to this conclusion that, all right, there's somebody better out there and we can talk about JT here in a little bit, um, but there's somebody else better out there who can take this business that we've started and will be the better CEO. Do uh, do you beat yourself up over that admission that maybe you're not the best person? Uh, And if so, how do you, what advice will you give or could you give to our audience of don't beat the crap out of yourself and the negative self-talk that invariably comes with maybe recognizing some of these pivotal moments in our lives?
1: Well, uh, you're exactly right. That's why you want to keep your identity small. The smaller your identity, the less you have to judge on, right? So, for example, you ever read someone's Twitter bio or something and they say, Oh, I'm a uh, a, uh, writer and a blogger and a a video host and a cinematographer, and they list like 30 things. Sure. That's that's an absolute guarantee that person's a total zero. I have never seen anyone who was super accomplished, who did a ton of things, who listed a bunch of things. In their bio and and the reason is because that person has a huge identity and as soon as you have a big identity it limits what you can test and try and accomplish i'll give you an even better example just directly from my life so um i'm a really really great writer obviously and i'm really good as a speaker with q a because i know what i'm talking about i'm engaging high energy all that kind of stuff but when i have to do a prepared speech i'm actually mediocre at best, really below, below par. Uh, I'm not terrible, but I'm not good. And uh, for years, I, uh, as a result of this, the only speeches I would do would be kind of Q&A or interview style, like this, right? I would never do prepared speeches. Uh, and so I, I had to do a prepared speech for something that just finished, I had to, there was no other way to do it. And so I hired Michael Port, who's probably one of the best speech coaches in the country. And then I almost canceled my uh, uh, like sessions with Michael Port. And I was like, what the hell's wrong with me? What am I doing? I couldn't figure out why this was such a resistance for me. And then I, 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 I started sessions with him and I realized what the problem was. The problem was uh, accomplished, successful writer had become part of my identity. And so I was afraid to move into speaking because I wasn't going to be as good at speaking uh, as I was at writing. Definitely not, at least at the beginning. And if I wanted to be even close, it was going to take a lot of work, and I was going to fail, and I was going to feel uncomfortable. And no one wants that, right? Uh, even uh, even if you consciously are willing to do it unconsciously, you're like, I don't want this. I don't need this shit. And so um, I, I, it's funny because Michael Port's dad is an analyst. And so we spent we spent a whole day together, and probably half the day was spent talking about this about fear and all that kind of stuff and all that fear comes from my um desire to see myself as accomplished important high status whatever and when i start in speaking i'm not going to be those things even if i if i practice a lot i can be okay but i'm not going to be great i'm not even going to be close and and and, and that's it, it was such a great sort of lesson for me. Again, like I do all this work and I still, I mean, this just happened in the last three months. I still fight these battles. The only difference is because of all the work I've done, now it's, it's much easier and much quicker for me to recognize uh, when I'm doing these things. And I kind of, I have the tools to self-correct um, relatively quickly as opposed to before I didn't have any tools at all. And so, like, I would make a lot of bad decisions as a result of this,
0: you know? Absolutely. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I think it's uh, a fairly widely expected reality when, you know, a writer puts something out to the world that has massive success, like most of your work has that that there's just this immediate connectivity that oh great writer equals great public speaker because the stories that are communicated in writing um, this person should be able to just get up on a stage grab a microphone and and communicate these same stories uh in you know live in front of people and uh what i'm hearing you say is those are very not necessarily uh proportional to one another
1: yep exactly yeah, and and uh, so much of that is just about self-perception. So if you keep your, to sum it up for your audience, if you keep your identity small, then you feel free to experiment and test and do lots of things, right? Whereas if you have a big identity, you're generally speaking going to be really afraid to try new things because it's going to threaten your identity. And, and so you're going to limit yourself to that thing, right? As
0: opposed to actually going out and putting in that work. Makes perfect sense. Let's talk about entrepreneurship for a minute. Um, I think, at least in the research I've done, Paul Graham, who's uh, one of the co-founders of Y Combinator, clearly has had a fairly uh, big impact on your line of thinking. And he talks about that what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur is essentially three things. You've got to start with great people on your team. You actually have to make something that the market you're serving wants. I mean, no, no no genius in that. And you need to be what he says is spend as little money as possible. But I I think what that really translates to is really tap into the maximum potential of your resourcefulness. And let's talk for a minute about the people part. You've got to start with great people. And I think something that has become critical for you through your journey is this trait, two traits in particular, one of them being resourcefulness and the other being determination. And I I was hoping maybe you could share with us uh, a, a particular story, if there's one that jumps to mind, about how perhaps you've hired people that said they were those things But unfortunately, they weren't, because I think it's happened to all of us.
1: Yes. Oh, man, I got such a good one. So um, uh, to tie back to a story I told about firing myself as CEO, my co-founder and I uh, understood relatively early that we needed to bring in professional management. It took me a while to understand I actually had to replace myself as CEO, But we thought we could solve the professional management issue by hiring, you know, just professional managers, good mid-level to higher-level executives. And um, so we we went out at first, this was maybe nine months ago or so, nine to ten months, looking for, you know, like a senior project manager, general manager type. And we ended up hiring a girl, a woman who had worked for two really big companies, both of which you've heard of. And uh, she was a great human being, really great and really smart uh, and, and skilled at her jobs, obviously. But um, she just did not in any way, shape or form understand how to work in a startup, like, which basically means you can't fake it in a startup. Uh, you, your actions are directly co- connected to consequences and what matters are results, not um, politics. Uh, and and we, we, we knew this was important, and we thought we did a good job both emphasizing this to her and interviewing for it. Uh, we really thought she wasn't like that. And then she got into the company, and it was like almost immediately we realized what a crucial, awful mistake we had made. And in her defense, uh, she's probably fooling herself. She wasn't trying to manipulate us, but in her defense, ultimately it's our mistake. Uh, not just because we decided to hire her, but why would we think a woman who's worked for a five thousand person company and a ten thousand person company would understand how to operate in a ten person company? That is just so stupid on our part like people the The, the best prediction of future behavior is past behavior. The best way to know someone can do something is to see proof that they 've done it in the past. She'd never done the fundamental tasks. We, ha- we were asking her to do in the environment and context that she- we were asking her to do it in. She had done them in a corporate environment and context, which is, that's the difference between, you know, uh, playing cricket and professional basketball. They're both professional sports, but they are totally, totally different. And you need totally different types of people to play them. Um, I mean, that's just one example of a ridiculously like kind of, it was kind of arrogant hiring mistake. Uh, we, we just thought we were such great interviewers and we were such great judges of talent that we would just, we would know the person uh, instead of actually being systematic and really looking at these things.
0: Well, I think it's a, uh, I think it's a pattern that uh, the entire business world continues to follow, right? You know, we get so caught up in looking at the words on a resume, you know, uh, whether it be job titles whether it be specific accomplishments money you know revenue grown expenses saved things like that that we forget that there are these intangible elements like what you you know the example you gave is great right it's so obvious but you have to go through the painful lesson of being able to to recognize that a 5000 and a 10000 person company just because someone can deliver the goods in that environment doesn 't mean that it 's transferable when you change the environment completely and you remove resources there 's no assistance there 's uh, uh, no uh, executive assistance there's there 's no bureaucracy. What you do and everything you do during the day has an immediate impact to the success of the organization. And again, nothing against this woman that you hired, but there's nowhere to hide when you go from something really, really big to something really, really small.
1: I know. I know. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, I don't even blame her. It's a 100% our fault. Like we never should have interviewed her and we never should have put her in a position like that, even though she thought she could, she thought she could handle it. And she's like, oh yeah, I want to move into a more startup environment, whatever. And that's great, but she needed to do that first to see what it's like. Because our place was is no place to train. Not for a <laughs> GM, you got to come in and you got to hit the ground running. Uh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, right. It, it, it's hundred percent our fault. Like we just never should have. Like it, it was hubris on our part. We thought we knew better than this system. Who and what would work in it? You know.
0: Well, and so let let's that's, it's a great segue. I want to jump into, you know, what you're working on right now and the company book in a box. And I've read the story, uh, but I want you to share the story of Melissa Gonzalez and that, that pivotal dinner when she asked you a question and you were so just transparent with your initial line of thinking and, you know, the, the elitist sort of sneering at her, well, you just got to work harder, Melissa, to what? Yeah, don't, re-
1: don't step on my story. You <laughs> can't to tell the story and then, and then ruin it. All so right. I, I was at an entrepreneur dinner and uh, I sat next to this woman. Uh, she's a great entrepreneur, really successful, built this amazing uh, sort of retail business. And she, she told me people have been asking her for 10 years to write a book. And she's like, look, I just don't have the time. Uh, i got a family, i got a, a company. And beyond that, like I don't like the writing process and the, the whole publishing uh, business seems like total nonsense, but I, I need to get this book done and out there. How do I get my ideas into a book without going through this? And I was like, I looked at her and I was like, are you asking me how to write a book without writing it? And she's like, yeah, kind of. And then I totally went into the most elitist, snobby writer bullshit and like you know i I started talking about hard work and and you know there's the process is part of the product and blah 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 like all total identity uh status signaling bullshit and she's like she stops me. she's like tucker aren't we at an entrepreneur dinner i'm like yeah she's like are you an entrepreneur like yeah of course she's like are you sure because a real entrepreneur would tell me, would help me think about how to do this. They wouldn't lecture me about hard work. I was like, hold on a minute, hold on, hold on. But she was totally right. That's ultimately what entrepreneurs do is they solve problems to give people what they want. And I was telling her, I was just lecturing her about status and about bullshit. And so then of course I became, she, it was such a gut punch, uh, Brian, I could not. I was embarrassed because I was one of those snobby, elitist writers that I used to hate and I used to never identify with. And so I became obsessed with this idea. How do I get her ideas out of her head without her having to touch a keyboard? And then about three weeks later, I couldn't think of it. And then, of course, when I wasn't trying to think of it, it came to me. Half of the books that are considered the greatest books in Western history were not written down by the author. Socrates never wrote a word down. Plato did, right? Jesus Christ never wrote a word down. His apostles did. Buddha never wrote a word down. Malcolm X did. Marco Polo. We go down the list. All these great minds used scribes. Well, if Jesus can do it, why can't Melissa? So I got to a whiteboard. I wrote down every single granular step that it takes uh, uh, to, to write a book, and Lo and behold, I realized that probably only about 20% of it needed Melissa. Now, it was the most important 20%. It was the ideas, right? Because I told her, I'm not gonna learn about, her business's is pop-up retail, which I know nothing about. I'm like, I'm not gonna learn this. Uh, and she, I'm not gonna ghostwrite this book. And she's like, I don't want you to ghostwrite it. I want it to be my ideas and my words and, and my voice. I just want you to, to, to get it out uh, into a book. And so uh, every step that required Melissa, I would just get on the phone, and I would interview her to get everything out of her head. And, uh, uh, you know, I eventually realized that there's a very structured way to do it, and it ended up working really well. And we got this amazing book out of her. And I was, and I was pretty shocked, too, because I didn't have to learn anything about pop-up retail. All I had to do was just structure these interviews a certain way, and it got it all, and, and know how to structure a book, and it got it all out. And what's so funny, Brian, is like here I am two years in, we've done 300 books, we've done like over 5 million in sales. And do you realize even after I finished her book, I'm such a dumbass, I didn't realize I was sitting on top of a goldmine business. It took like 10 or 20 more people coming to me after they'd heard about this and cutting me checks to realize (laughs) that this was maybe a really big deal that there were a lot of people who had this problem and I'd stumbled upon an actual solution that worked for a lot of people. Because all because I was attached to an identity and idea, I was attached to a way of thing, a, a way of thinking that I thought had to be the right way instead of letting,
0: making my identity small and seeing uh, the way things could be. I think one of the interesting pieces of that story And led to a revelation for you and your team was really understanding what business Book in a Box really was in. Can you you share what you thought your business was and what the reality of what it's become truly is? Right. So so we thought this was just about
1: writing books, right? And, And for about four to six months, that's really kind of the way we framed it. But then I realized, wait a minute. especially once we got the process really systematized, I I said, well, if we can do this for books, why can't we do it for podcasts, or blog posts, or speeches, or pitch decks? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Almost any idea, there's a certain set of steps to turn the idea into the finished media product, you know? Now, the, the hard part is the idea. That's where the real creativity comes. People used to, used to talk about, oh, like the the, the the technique of writing or the technique of this, or the technique of that. I think that's total bullshit. The The actual technique can almost always be learned and it can be replicated. The hard part is the actual, the creativity comes with the actual generation of the idea in the head, right? And once we realize that, we're like, man, look at this. There's all these amazing ideas locked up in all these people's heads. If we can create a process to turn any idea into a finished media product, think about how much value we can unlock in the world. How many great books were in people's heads that we had never read because they died with them in their heads because they never had the time or the ability or the skill to write them? How many great movies are like that? How many great speeches? How many Just how many great blog posts? How many people do you know... know one specific thing maybe 3,000 words uh, that would be immensely valuable to 10 or 20,000 people or a million people right or 10 million people but it's in their head because they're either afraid to write it or they don't know how or they don't they don't know they don't have a set of skills that really can just be contracted out that's what I think we are is the the company that can turn ideas
0: into finished media products that can unlock the world's wisdom. Very profound. I love it. I really do. And I think it, what where it leads me uh, is, is this next topic around, I think the relationship, and this is my perception, so correct me if I'm wrong, that you have with the notion of chasing profit. And something that you learned, I think through a few of your entrepreneurial experiences and the alignment that you had, or should I say misalignment, with some of your former founders of really recognizing clearly profits critical, right? You can't, it's be socially irresponsible to be in business and not turn a profit. But I don't, I don't perceive that your reason for continuing to start businesses is purely for the pursuit of making money. Am I right? Nope. Am I incorrect? A hundred percent right. This is Brian. The, I joke with my team,
1: that the only, the only thing left on earth that I can't buy right now is a private plane. And actually, I could. It would just take pretty much all of my assets, and then I'd have to live on it. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so, like, there's nothing else left for me that I want. I mean, I drink expensive wine, but, you know, like, I, I have a nice house. Uh, like, I, I mean, there's other things I could spend money on, but I don't care about having a million dollar watch. I think that's nonsense. Like there's, there's nothing left. You know, I, I've got great, uh, uh, you know, I, I've got more than enough money for me and my family and for my kids. Like, uh, I don't need more money. I mean, I'd like more money. I definitely want to fly private, but there's no amount of money anyone could pay me to do anything I don't want to do just no way. You know, no one, you could not write a check big enough to tell me to wake up every morning and let's say, go be an investment banker. There's literally not a check you could write because I don't need the money. Like I have what's what's called fuck you money. People want me to do shit I don't want to do. Fuck you. And I can say it because I don't need anyone's money, right? The reason I do things now is because I love them. I, not only do I love doing them, but I also think they matter, right? And, dude, I'm 41 years old now, and I have a wife and a son and a daughter two months away. And so, for me, the only thing that's truly valuable is my time because I cannot buy more time. And every my son's only going to be two years old for a year, and every minute that I don't spend with him when he's two years old is gone forever, you know? And so, like, everything I do, I measure against is it worth stealing time from my son, right? Is it worth, is is that a trade-off that's okay? And so it's so funny, man, my life has become so small. I hardly go to conferences anymore, I hardly travel, I hardly speak because um, it's not worth it to me anymore. But the thing that is worth it is, to me, this company, man, I, I think what we're doing is not just amazing, but it's also a contribution that I'm uniquely qualified to make. And I think it's not obvious to me this thing would be created if we weren't creating it. You know, there's some companies that like, they're gonna happen, Uber was gonna happen. It just depended on who was gonna make it, right? It's not obvious to me that book in a box was gonna ever happen. Um, uh, and we've already done 300 books and we've already seen a massive impact on real people's lives from those books, you know? We didn't write the books. There's someone else's books with their ideas and those ideas are now impacting people's real lives and those ideas would not exist in spreadable, shareable book form if we had not done this. That, to me, is super motivating. That's worth trading off some time for my family. That's why I do this, dude, because it matters.
0: It matters to me and it matters to the world and it matters to the people I love, you know? I think that uh, question that you just rattled off of is this worth stealing time from my son, from my wife, from my family, it's a really, really powerful question. I've got got two daughters, a 12-year-old and a nine-year-old about to be 10. And I'll tell you, man, If I were to ask myself that question far more often, I wonder how many different decisions I would make as a result of the real answer to that question. Because what you've realized early on in parenthood is something that I think a lot of executives and leaders don't realize until their kids are perhaps off to college and maybe even starting lives of their own, that you blink and the time just goes and you just don't get it back. And so – You are, you're very, very lucky and wise beyond most people to realize that, uh, that's, that's time you just don't get back. So, uh, good for you, man.
1: That's the time that matters the most, man. It it really is like
0: people, I think a lot of people
1: say that because they think they're supposed to. And I used to get annoyed when people, before I had kids and was married, I'm like, I I wasn't anti-family or kids. But I remember, you know, like, oh, I got to go home and spend time with my kids. I'm like, what are you talking about? Your kids are always going to be, like, it just didn't connect with me, sure, you know? Sure, sure. like, uh, I didn't get it. And then, and to be totally honest, even for the first nine months or a year, um, you know how babies oh. are, man. They don't really connect oh. with you much. And so, like, I liked my kid in the abstract, but it wasn't like a real connection. Totally. And in some, somewhere about a year, man, he kind of started turning into a human. Yep. And then it was, you know, like engaging with me, looking me in the eye, speaking. Like we, we have a, he's two, we have a full relationship now. Yep. And um, man, it's like, it's crazy. He's full sentences now. Three weeks ago, he was not. And it's like, and I went to, we were just talking about, it. I went to Genius Network three days. I was gone for three days. And in those three days, he went from chunks of words to full sentences. <laughs> and, and, and oh, no, well, that's the thing though, is like I missed, yep. a, like the, the, the transition. And it's like, uh, like, it's kind of sad, man. Like I never, I I don't get that. I don't get to do that with him again, you know? And, And I didn't, it just, you don't get it until you, you have it. And then once you have it and you think about it, it's like, I can't, maybe I'm weird, man. Maybe other people just don't like their wife and kids, but I really like mine. I really like them a lot. I love them. And it's like, I mean, I don't want to spend 24 hours a day with them because that would be annoying. I got to do something else. But man, like any time away from them hurts, you know?
0: I, I understand it at, I think, the same level. I, I've shared with people, uh, you know, uh, parents-to-be as they're expecting their first, you know, those that I know. And, you know, they'll ask me, so what's it really like? And I say, you know, at the end of the day, I know you're in love with your spouse, but the minute that child comes into this world and you begin to build a relationship with whether it's a boy or a girl, your son, your daughter, you're going to experience a level of love that you never knew was actually possible. And it's going to be, you can't even even describe it. You can't, you can't, you've got to, it takes a parent to know it because it's just, it's such a deep felt sense of connection. And it's uh, man, I'll tell you what. uh, So I don't know what it's like to have a son what i can say is from the experience of having two girls there is something so unbelievably special about the daddy daughter relationship and man i'm just <laughs> i can't wait for you to experience it you, you you're going to just eat it up and you'll you won't you won't be able to get enough it's awesome it's just awesome uh, dude i'm i'm excited man it's like, great. Uh, i'm really excited that's yeah. really great It's really, really great. Man, this has been uh, a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. A a lot of great nuggets in here. I could chat with you for another three hours. I want to be respectful. And, you know, I think what uh, I think the best course of action here is, is if you'd be up for it at some time over the ensuing months for us to do a part two and dig into some other stuff. Maybe we can reconnect after. Did you guys pick out a name yet? Is that something that you're sharing yes. with your daughter? What yeah, of
1: course. Of course. Yeah. Uh, her name is going to be Vaughn. Vaughn.
0: V-A-U-G-H-N. Vaughn Max. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, maybe, uh, maybe we can uh, reconnect in a few months after Vaughn's in the world, living a happy, healthy life. And we can get your perspective on the difference between having a son, having a daughter. And also, revisit uh the additional success that book in a box is having and uh dig into whatever other topics uh we can at that time dude i would love to happy to come on anytime yeah this has been great tucker really appreciate it man wish you and the book in a box team the absolute best and uh oh you know what one last thing real quick actually (laughs) this i thought was great on one of your uh, on one of your blog posts, you talk about you actually in a few of them you have uh, recommended reading lists and books that you definitely like. Don't read this; this is garbage. And I will tell you, I chuckled because I happen to agree that Jim Collins is good to great. You're you you're not a fan. Let's and, and not, I'll say it. I'll it's say it's
1: not man. It's
0: total retroactive.
1: Like we're, it's post hoc explanation. It does not. It gives you no. It, it's just total. It is. I was actually talking about this with the Sims Celeb the other day. He he went on this
0: huge rant about it, about the stat in it and the statistics in it. It's just total, total garbage. You know what cracks me up is I look at the companies that he featured, and and I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that's what led him to write How the Mighty Fall. You know, you've know, you got Philip Morris on there, and you know, no offense to people who smoke. I wish they wouldn't because it's certainly not healthy, and we're all aware of what the health repercussions are of smoking, but – their business is the business of actually creating a product that really has a pretty detrimental effect on people's lifespan. Like, how do you feel good about doing that? And then another company that was on their list is Circuit City. Where are they today? Now, granted, Toyota? I know it, it's, it's hard to yeah. stay alive for years and years and years. But, man, th- these companies were, were – these aren't good companies. No,
1: not in any way, shape, or form. He just picked market leaders – and then created a narrative around uh, some data, it's
0: total, total
1: nonsense, total nonsense.
0: Well, we've got a lot more to cover because uh, I think there's a lot more philosophical alignment that uh, that we share around what the business of the future looks like, what employees of the future uh, look like, what they expect, how we should be leading companies, what leadership looks like. I mean, clearly your whole experience as CEO and remo- removing yourself as CEO, I think is another topic worth exploring. So uh, we're, we're definitely going to get together again. I really appreciate your time, Tucker. Have a great, uh, have a great week. And uh, I look forward to connecting again soon. Cool, man. Great. Nice talking to you. Likewise. Thanks, man. Enjoyed hearing our interview with Tucker. If you're interested in a transcribed version of this show or want to listen to more episodes of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. Also, I'm always taking recommendations, so if there's someone you think would be a great guest on the show, drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I promise we've got more great interviews on the way. Thanks again for listening.